Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. As always, you guys are so talented, and Bima, thank you for reading to us from God's Word. Well, it is good to be back here on another Wednesday and to continue our study in biblical ethics and specifically in this new segment of topics on social ethical topics or social issues. And last week we began with a discussion and an introduction on economics and we went through a lot of biblical principles of economics. Well, tonight we're going to dive a little bit deeper, but before we jump into it, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson to start. So for hundreds of years on the Korean Peninsula, it was united as one nation, one Korea for hundreds of years, sharing the same culture, the same language. But after World War II, the nation was basically split in half. You had a north and a south the North being influenced by Soviet Russia and the South being influenced by America. And there was the Korean War, which solidified that separation. So even to this day, you have North Korea and you have South Korea, two distinct countries. And though they shared the same cultural heritage and language, the differences between the two countries could not be any more extreme. Let me give you some examples. So for average family income in South Korea, it's about 25,000 US dollars is the average family income over the whole country. In North Korea, $1,200 a year. 25,000 compared to 1,200. Poverty rate in South Korea, about 15% of the nation. In North Korea, it's estimated to be over 60% of the nation lives in complete poverty. Life expectancy in South Korea, it is 83 years old, one of the highest in the world. For North Korea, it is, according to official numbers, 72, but it may be even lower than that. Food, so as a nation, South Korea was ranked number 17 in the world for food availability and in the various metrics that are out there. In North Korea, in contrast, in the 1990s, they went through a national famine that killed an estimated 3.5 million of its citizens. 3.5 million. And then when it comes to political freedom, there's an index called the Freedom in the World Index, and South Korea was given a score of 83 out of 100. So a lot of political freedom. North Korea, on the other hand, they are one of the most repressive countries in the world. They have a, in fact, they have a concentration camp system in their country that imprisons estimated upwards to 400,000 of its citizens. And according to one survivor of Auschwitz, one of the Nazi concentration camps that was part of a investigation into North Korean concentration camps, this survivor of Auschwitz said that what he heard from survivors and former prison guards in the North Korean camps is that they were worse, they are worse than what 
even Auschwitz and some of the Nazi concentration camps are like. And maybe a picture, well, you hear the, the adage that a picture is worth a thousand words. I have one photo. Okay, this is a satellite photo from space. And it's a little bit small, but on the bottom right of that photo is the nation of South Korea at night from space. You can see all the lights, all the cities. See that black space? Well, the, the next set of lights on the, towards the top and left, that's China. That black space in between China and South Korea, that's North Korea. So at night, there's basically no power, no electricity, except if you see it, there's one little blob of light where the capital city is, Pyongyang. Everywhere else, pitch black. That is a picture of the poverty in North Korea. And really what we could ask is, considering that North Korea and South Korea share the same cultural heritage, the same background, what is the cause of the differences between North and South Korea? Well, there are, of course, many causes to any situation, but we can say this, when it comes to South Korea, they have a highly capitalistic economy. In fact, they're ranked the 19th freest economy in the world, even higher than the United States. And South Korea's economy has produced things like Samsung. Anyone have a Samsung phone at all? Android users? No? Okay, got one back there. Wesley does. Okay, he's not here to represent. All right. I used to be an Android user, but I went to the dark side. A few, yeah, a few months ago. <laughs> Hyundai, there's a big Hyundai plant out here. Some of your parents maybe even have worked for Hyundai. That's from South Korea. All right. So this is what South Korea has produced. North Korea, in contrast, is an intensely communist, communistic nation. They have the 177th freest economy in the world. And if you're not aware of how, that's dead last. That's dead last. They have the most unfree, repressive economy in, in the world. And we could argue that this communism, this intense communism that North Korea practices, is the cause of its poverty and even its oppression of its people. Now, last week, I briefly defined communism. But for review, I don't expect you guys to remember. I, I mean, even though I could maybe quiz you guys, but I, I wouldn't do that. Let me give you a review. So, Communism is an economic and political theory that began, well, really became popular in the 1800s. And as an economic theory, in a communist country, there is minimal or no private ownership slash control of property or business. No private ownership, no private control of wealth. The central government in a communist nation controls almost every aspect of a, a country's or their country's business and, and wealth. And, and by extension, well, let me read you a quote from Karl Marx. He is considered the father of, of communism. That's a photo of him from the 1800s. I read you this quote last week. It says, The theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property or in other words, destruction of private property. And since 
In communist countries, the central government controls almost every aspect of business and wealth. They also control almost every aspect of social life because social life is largely built on business and wealth, right? And in order to maintain their control of all these aspects of social life and the economy, communist governments have a record of violently suppressing any hint of political opposition to their rule. Any hint at all, they, they will suppress. And the example of North Korea is not really a unique case. It's an extreme case, but it's not unique. In fact, when you study the history of communist nations, such as Soviet Russia, Maoist China, Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, all these different countries and regimes, even some Latin American countries, what you find is the same horrible statistics regarding poverty and political oppression. Here's a statistic for you. From 1900, the year 1900 to 1987, it is estimated that communist governments and regimes murdered 110 million of their own citizens. 110 million of their own citizens through famine, government uh, initiated and managed famine, concentration camps, and just straight executions. 110 million. Now the big question that these definitions, these statistics, everything that I've gone through, the big question that it doesn't answer is why? Why do communist powers seek to eliminate private control of business and wealth? And, and why do they enforce policies that kill and oppress so many of its own citizens? Why? Well, tonight, the goal is going to be to explore the philosophy or the thinking behind communism. The thinking that motivates communism. And for those who might be wondering, why are we in a Christian youth service? It's supposed to be a sermon. Why are, we talk, why are we going to be talking about communist philosophy and communist thought? Or we could even say communist theory. Why would we be talking about this? Well, let me say this. Communist theory represents more than just economic and political theory. Communist theory ultimately represents a belief system about the nature of the world, the source of the world's problems, and the solution to the world's problems. And in this sense, we could say that communist theory is really a religious, it's a religious belief. It's a, the, the, the philosophy by, behind communism really is a religion. And for us today, the relevance is that this belief system, the same belief system that is behind communism is spreading throughout our culture and gaining in popularity. I saw one poll or statistic that said up to 70% of millennials, that's my generation, 70% say they would vote for a socialist political candidate. Now, when I say socialist or socialism, socialism really is a cousin of communism. It's based on the same principles, the same theories, just how you get there is different. Communism, it's through revolution. Socialism, it's through political reform. But it's the same belief system behind both. So, and let me just give you an example of this. I have a quote from a lady named Patrice Cullors. 
She is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, the political movement. And here's a quote from her from around the year 2015. She says, we are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. And I think, I think, and I think that what we really tried to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. This is a quote from her saying that, that we, as in the founders of Black Lives Matter, are trained Marxists. And so this is just one example of how the theory, and, and Marxist, by Marxist it means that she's a follower or a, a student of Karl Marx, the founder, one of the founders of communist philosophy. So this is important. This is important to understand. And, and I would even argue that to have a complete understanding of ethical topics like economics, environmentalism, racial, racial equality, we, we need to have a basic understanding of the belief system that is behind this and that is behind communism. Also, and I'll say this, it's important to study this because we ourselves need to be protected from the deceptive arguments of communism. We need to be protected from the belief system that it offers and what it says about the world, especially when we compare that with Scripture. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And trust me, we will get into Scripture tonight. I don't think you'll ever see me preach without getting into, into Scripture. But I want to outline a few, we could say, pillars of communist thinking and thought. And... Um, Here's the first major principle or pillar of the communist belief system, and that is this, that there is no God. That's the first one, no God. I have another few quotes from Vladimir Lenin. Look at the first one. Vladimir Lenin was the first ruler president of Soviet Russia. He, he came before Joseph Stalin and here's what he says in the first quote. He says, Marxism is materialism. As such, it is relentlessly hostile to religion. Here's another quote from Lenin. He says elsewhere, religion is opium for the people. Religion is a sort of spiritual booze in which the slaves of capital drown their human image, their demand for a life more or less worthy of man. In other words, what Lenin was saying here is that in his view, religion was a drug that kept the oppressed people, the slaves of capital, it, it, religion kept them from asserting their right as, as men and as the oppressed, that it kept them under this oppression and this subjugation that he believed that they were under. And then in the, in the flip side, he also believed that religion was used by the oppressors to continue subjugating their people. So this is, and, and here Vladimir Lenin, he's not alone in this, okay? We could say that all major communist thinkers and philosophers, including Karl Marx, they were committed materialists. And what do I mean by materialists? Well, materialism as a philosophical thought Materialism. And uh, Deidre, we could, um, when we're done with the quotes, we can just go to the background of, um, of, the, uh, of the, the communism background. 
Materialism is the belief that reality and truth is, is based on what you see and what you think. In other words, the physical matter of the world is the reality. That's the truth. And what you think about that, that world and the physical things of the world, that's truth. And so in this system, nothing exists beyond physical things. There's no God. There's no creator of the world. There's no creator of human beings. There's no God who has authority over the world or the people who live in it. There's no God who defines good and evil or who rewards good and punishes evil. We're just all here by just chance. The world just exists and we've just evolved and we're here and, and there's no God, there's no rules. It's just a dog-eat-dog world. And this materialism was very popular in the 1800s. In fact, you might hear the, heard of the name Charles Darwin, the father of the theory of evolution. He was also a committed materialist. And you'll see some connections between evolution and communism in a moment. But what you need to know is this. The rejection of God's existence and the rejection of God's authority over the world is foundational to the communist belief system. It's foundational. And it directly impacts the remaining pillars of communist thought. And here is one that we're going to really dig deep into in our remaining time, and that is this. Here's a second key pillar of communist thought, is that the world is survival of the fittest. In other words, the founders of communist theory, they believe that the natural order of the world or the guiding principle of the world was survival of the fittest. They believe that you have strong people and you have weak people, powerful, powerless, and that all history, all meaning can be summed up as a conflict between the strong and the weak, the oppressor and the oppressed. This is what they believe. I have another final quote from the Communist Manifesto that was authored by Karl Marx, a co-author. And this is what it says. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. This is, this is how they view the world and view history. And really, when you unpack this, what, what you find is that the belief is that all the world's problems, all the death, all the destruction, all of the, the poverty, all of it, everything that you see in the world that is wrong is a product or a result of this struggle between different classes of people, between the oppressor and the oppressed. This is what they believe. And why do they believe this? Why do communist thinkers explain the world in this way? Well, here we're going to start getting into some biblical principles, but here's, here's one thing that we need to establish, and it's this. Here's the first reason communist thinkers think this way. For one, they believe that reality is defined by what they see with their own eyes. And when they, when they see, so they believe reality is what they see, right? We talked about materialism. And when they see conflict between different groups of people, different classes of people, let's say fighting over land or wealth or power, 
Once they see that, they think, well, that's all there is to it. That's all you need to understand. That is all of human history. It's just a struggle between different classes of people that are trying to gain power, trying to gain authority, and so forth. And they don't consider any spiritual explanation. They don't consider that maybe there's a God who has a purpose or who has some level of control behind that. They don't, they don't consider that at all. They would deny any notion that God is in control of the world, in control of the world's problems, or that God may have a purpose behind the world's problems. So that's number one. They see what they, they see with their eyes. They believe that that is the explanation for everything. Here's number two. The reason communists believe this way is that they also think that conflict, they, they think that conflict for power defines everything because conflict for power defines their own existence. And what do I mean by that? Let's turn to the word of God and look at Psalm chapter 10, verse 2 to 11. And we're going to see this, and really in this passage, we're going to see how the unbeliever, how the atheist, the materialist, thinks about the world and thinks about their life. So Psalm 10, verses 2 to 11, it reads this way. It says, In the pride, in pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, or in his pride, does not seek him, that is God. All his thoughts are, and in other words, all his thoughts continually are, there is no God. That is what they are constantly telling themselves. His ways prosper at all times. And this word prosper, it's a, it's a military term for strength. In other words, they, 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 they have success and it's typically by force. All the, the wicked man's ways prosper. It's by force at all times. And then it says, your judgments, speaking to God, your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. In other words, the judgments of God, the thoughts of God are out of the sight of the wicked man. He says to himself, that is the wicked man, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So what we see here in this passage is a person, a God denier, an atheist, a materialist who is fully immersed in their sin and in their selfish unbelief. 
They do not recognize God's authority. They don't even acknowledge God or his authority. And so they think that the world is just there for his taking, that, hey, the world is my oyster. I can just take what I want. And the idea is that if you, as the victim, if you're not strong enough to resist me, the wicked man, well, then that's your problem. It's doggy dog, survival of the fittest. If you don't want me to take from you, well, then, okay, become strong yourself and, 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 defend, and defend yourself. This is how the wicked person, the God denier, thinks. And the major champions of communism, being God deniers themselves, being atheists themselves, they were driven by the same self-empowering desires that are described in Psalm 10. The exact same desires. Therefore, they think that this is how the world functions. It's kind of like, for example, the liar who always thinks that somebody is lying to them. Or in terms of relationship, okay, some of you may be may have heard of something like this. It's like the, the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the husband or the wife that always thinks their significant other is, is talking with another person or that is going to cheat on them. And, and sometimes it happens that, well, the reason they always think that is because they themselves are cheaters. They themselves are talking with other people and flirting with other people. And so they see the world through that lens. They think that naturally everyone else is like them. So if they're a liar and a cheater, they think that everybody else is a liar and cheater. Well, same thing with the communists. They think that the world is a dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest world where the, power take, the powerful take from the, the, the weak. That is how they think because that is how they operate. And unsurprisingly, when you look at the history of communism, the most faithful communists have always been people who will seize and maintain power by any means necessary. It's no surprise that the Lenins, the Stalins, the Kim Jong-ils, the, the communist leaders of the world become the, the biggest oppressors themselves. This is because this is how they think. Now, in contrast to the way that these atheists and these communists view the world, the Bible explains the world differently and the Bible explains the reason for world problems and world conflict differently. Turn with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. And really, this is where it, is all, it all begins when it comes to the world's problems. In Genesis 3, verses 17 and 19, it reads, Then to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here we have being established is the fact that the reason death and corruption came into the world is because of the sin of Adam. Everything originally was created good. It was created perfect. But when Adam sinned against God and ate from the forbidden tree, God, as a punishment upon the world and upon Adam and his descendants, cursed the ground and brought death into the world. 
And even beyond Adam, some people and nations still suffer poverty and oppression because they are under the judgment of God for sin that they've committed. For example, if you were, if you were here this past Sunday, we, uh, we went through or we mentioned Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 to 48. You don't have to turn there, but it'll be up on the screen. Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 to 48. Here, God says to his people Israel, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Now let me clarify that not every oppressed person is under God's direct judgment for some kind of sin. But it is true to say that all of us and every person living in this world is at some level suffering the consequences of sin. If not their own sin, then the sin of their ancestors, even all the way back up to Adam. So all of us are suffering the consequences of sin. And, and the big point from these passages, and here's what I want you to take away, from, take away with, is this, that God is ultimately the one who brought destruction and corruption into the world. God brought it upon this planet, and God is still the one who controls it. And this brings us to our next point in terms of what the Bible says about the world and its problems. In contrast to the communist worldview, the world is not a free-for-all where the strong can just do whatever they want to the weak and then get away with it. It's not a dog-eat-dog world where God is unaware or uninvolved in what's happening in his world. Here's an example, and here's the last passage that we'll explore for tonight. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 to 16, this is an interesting passage because this is an example where God is going to use a wicked people, the, specifically the, the nation of Assyria, which is an ancient empire that was located in modern-day Iraq. He was going to use this wicked, powerful people to be an instrument of judgment upon his people who were sinning and disobeying him. So here in Isaiah 10, starting in verse 5, here's what God says to Assyria. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. So here God is saying that he's going to use the empire of Assyria, a wicked people, to be an instrument of divine judgment against Israel. But from Assyria's perspective, their purpose in coming against Israel was not to carry out divine judgment. It was just to destroy and to conquer. They were motivated by pride, by greed, and by murder. And here we see this continuing in, uh, if you go down to verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 10. 
down in verse 12, it says, So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on, and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness or his pride. For he has said, that is, the king of Assyria has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding. And I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. So what we see here is that Assyria, although they were going to be used by God to to complete and fulfill God's purposes, in their mind and in their heart, they, they were proud and they were evil. Their intentions were not God's intentions. And as a result, God promised to destroy them and to turn judgment upon them for their wicked thoughts. Here's a final two verses, in, continuing in verse 15. Here God says, Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. In other words, you think, I watched the, these guys play baseball um, this last week. If you can picture it in your mind, they're up, they're up at bat, and then all of a sudden the bat flips them over and starts wielding them like a bat to hit the baseball. If you could, if you could think, that's what God is saying here. That absurd imagery, that absurd imagery is what is what describes this kind of prideful thinking. For the person that says, by my hand I did this, by my power and my strength I accomplished this, it is like that imagery, like a club wielding those who lift it. It's foolish. And so in verse 16, it says, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, says he will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, And under his glory, that is the glory of Assyria, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And sure enough, when the kingdom of Assyria came against Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, the the king king of Assyria at the time, his name was Sennacherib, he, uh, he boasted before God, saying, Who is your God? Is your God more powerful than any of the other gods that I've destroyed and the people I've destroyed? And God, using the angel of the Lord, went down and destroyed 180,000 of his troops overnight. Just wiped them out. So God did fulfill this promise and eventually even destroyed the Assyrian Empire completely. Now what's the big point to take away from this passage? The big point is that we do not live in a free-for-all, survival-of-the-fittest, doggy-dog world. God controls every aspect of human's existence and human history. God is 100% in control. Everything that happens ultimately serves the purposes of God, even if the people who fulfill that purpose have different motivations than God. Even if their motivations are evil, 
God's intentions are good and he uses the evil for his good. And finally, what we could say is unlike the belief of the atheist described earlier in Psalm 10, the materialist, God sees everything that the wicked does. God does not forget. God does not turn his face. He knows their thoughts. He knows their deeds. And he will eventually judge the wicked for those evil deeds. If not in this life, then when they die, they face judgment. As it says in the letter to Hebrews, it is appointed for man once to die and then judgment. God sees. But unfortunately, the communist belief system rejects everything that we just established and went through. In that belief system, it is a dog-eat-dog world. It is a survival of the fittest world where the strong freely take from the weak. That is how they view the world. And next week, we are going to see how these pillars of atheism lead to other pillars of communistic belief and philosophy. So next week, we'll go even further and continue our study. But in the meantime, let us pray and get ready for Wednesday after church. Lord God, uh, thank you so much for today and just the ability to come together and to study these things, Lord, not only your word and what your word says about human existence and the thoughts of the evil person and how you relate to the evil person, Lord, um, but even the ability to study the false religions and the false philosophies that do exist in this world, Lord, and, and that we have your word to be a, a true and perfect lens by which to see and understand everything, Lord. We are so thankful for your word and what it teaches us. We pray for this evening that we would just have a lot of fun, that we would enjoy good food and, and fun games, Lord, and just each other's um, uh, friendship and company, Lord. I pray for these students as they finish out this week in school and in their jobs and in their extracurricular activities, that you would just be with them and that you would strengthen them and bless them. I also pray for the adults that are here, um, that you would bless them in their daily um, activities as well. We pray all these things according to the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.